0: Consistent need for blood pressure support with vasopressors is a common cause of prolonged ICU stay. Based on a few retrospective observational studies, it was discovered that mitadrin may potentially reduce the duration of IV vasopressor use and allow patients to leave the ICU faster. Given prior studies on mitadrin use in the ICU were observational, a prospective study is needed to fill this research gap. Dr. Natalie Haddad, a clinical pharmacist at Mayo Clinic, discusses the role of Midadrin in the ICU based on the review of a recent 2020 publication.
1: The average cost of one night in the ICU is around $3,000 to $4,000 here at Mayo Clinic. Now, this is nonspecific to Mayo, as we know that ICU stays are expensive regardless of which hospital you go to. One potential reason that a patient might stay in the ICU for a bit longer is an ongoing need for intravenous vasopressors. Now, clinicians everywhere have been racking their brains trying to come up with a way that we could potentially mitigate this, and one proposed mechanism is through the use of the oral acting agent, Minadrin. In fact, in 2018, some of our very own Mayo Clinic providers put together a paper evaluating our use of Minadrin for its off-label indications, where we found that its use has increased by over 50% between 2011 to 2016. Now, if I were a betting woman, I would say that coming into 2020 here, we probably have an even more increased use of midodrine for its off-label indications, which really poses the question, is this appropriate, and is this the best option for our patients? So today I'd like to explain the mechanism of action of midodrine and why we might be looking at it for vasopressor sparing. I'd also like to review what the current evidence has told us, and then finally, I'll conclude by trying to create a little bit of a roadmap here on where we might still be able to use Minodrine. So in 1996, we actually had the first FDA approval for Minodrine, which was for orthostatic hypotension, and this was actually an orphan drug designation. And since then, we still have no other FDA-approved indications. However, we've seen a resurgence in its use. Now, some other indications that people have tried to use this medication for would be for post-hemodialysis hypotension. We've also seen it used for hepatorenal syndrome, and, of course, the subject of our talk today, vasopressor sparing. So this is midodrine. It's an alpha-1 agonist that acts directly in the arterioles in the veins on alpha-1. And it's actually a prodrug that gets deglycinated through active enzymatic hydrolysis to two byproducts here, desglymidrin and glycine. So desglymidrin is actually the active formulation of the drug, and this metabolism takes place in about 30 minutes in the body. Now, desglyminadrine goes on to bind alpha-1 receptors in the vasculature, which results in vasoconstriction and an increase in systemic vascular resistance. If we compare it to some of our IV vasopressor options, we'll see that it primarily acts on alpha-1 with almost no activity on the beta-1 receptor. So here it is most similar to phenylephrine, and I think a good way to think about minadrine and whether or not you might consider its use is would you consider adding on IV phenylephrine to your patient? Now in 1998 Wright and his colleagues did a pharmacokinetic study evaluating the effect that minadrin has on a patient's blood pressure. So this was specifically looking at patients with orthostatic hypotension and they gave subsequent increases in doses of minadrin and then measured the systolic blood pressure. So that top line here, our green line on the chart on the left, we'll see this is the 20 milligram dose of minadrin where we saw the greatest benefit in blood pressure. In fact, they found that with a 2.5 milligram dose, we saw an increase in 7 millimeters of mercury of the systolic blood pressure. With 10 milligrams, we saw an increase in 34 millimeters of mercury. And then finally, as you might assume, we saw our highest increase with the systolic for that 20 milligram dose of 43 millimeters of mercury. They also noted that even though we get the transformation to the active formulation of the drug in about 30 minutes, the peak effects of desglyminidrin don't occur until about one to two hours later. And in healthy patients, it was found to have a bioavailability of 93%. They also noted that mididrin has a half-life of about three to four hours and is primarily excreted through the kidneys through active renal secretion. So in regards to some dosing considerations, there's really no clear guidance on what our dosing should look like for Minadrin, as we haven't really evaluated this as much in the literature. Most common doses have ranged anywhere from 2.5 to 20 milligrams every six to eight hours. However, we primarily see that every eight hour dosing. Max reported dosing is 40 milligrams every eight hours, but again, this is not really an evidence-based cap, um, and we have occasionally seen uh, doses push past this as well. On the right-hand side here with side effects, the first one I ta- want to talk about is this supine hypertension, which actually is the only black box warning we have with menadrin. However, I'd like you to take this with a grain of salt because this really got added to the FDA label when this medication was given uh, to patients that had autonomic dysregulation. So these patients couldn't actually control their blood pressure when standing, but when lying down had very normal uh, blood pressure or were normotensive. That being said, we got this three times a day dosing from these patients because we found that if it was continued at bedtime, those patients would have supine hypertension and potentially hypertensive crises. That being said, if your patient does not have autonomic dysfunction, this is not a relevant side effect. The next side effect here, reflex bradycardia, is probably our most common and most serious side effect that you'll have with minodrin. And in fact, in a recent study, this was reported to occur in about 15% of patients on minodrin. Now, dysuria, urinary retention, and erection or goosebumps, are not very common and are typically not something you really need to worry about with your patients. Most of these side effects here have an occurrence of about less than 1%, and therefore are kind of just on the label, but not something you really need to be watching for. So why are we even asking the question, should we use Mitadrin? And I think a lot of this comes back to the fact that we're really trying to reduce vasopressor needs because we found that in most hospitals, it serves as a barrier to ICU discharge. Now given the amount of cardiac monitoring that these agents require, in most scenarios, you can't be on an IV vasopressor if you're not in the ICU. This could potentially lead to a patient having an increased length of stay, and with that could come increased hospital costs. And finally, we've had an abundance of literature that have found that prolonged ICU stays have led to further complications like catheter-related infections, antimicrobial resistance, delirium, and ultimately mortality. Now, I'm not the only one that's interested in minadrin research, and actually within the past 20 years, um, we've had kind of an increase in the number of studies published regarding minadrin and some of its off-label indications. As you see, there's really not much within the past 20 years, but here in 2015 to 2020, we've kind of seen a resurgence in the interest of minadrin for its off-label indications. Now, before we proceed any further, I would like to propose a question How does menadrin primarily elicit its effect on blood pressure? And you can either use your phone or tablet here to um, answer on Poll Everywhere or respond online via pollev.com slash MayoRx or text MayoRx to 22333. All right, so I'm going to go ahead and move on here. I see we have a little bit of a, a split with the majority of answers here being D, but some answers for A and B as well. So let's go through them. Option A, menadrin binds to alpha-2 receptors. This would be incorrect since we know that it primarily acts on alpha-1. Menadrin binds to alpha-1 receptors. While that is true, the primary effect on blood pressure really comes from that active metabolite, desglymenadrin. So this would also be incorrect. C, no one chose this, and I'm happy about it because we know that there's no beta-1 activity. And so finally, D, desglymenadrin binds to alpha-1 receptors would be our best choice here. So I'd like to propose a little bit of a clinical scenario for you guys. You have a 65-year-old female admitted to the medical ICU with septic shock secondary to pneumonia. On day one, we start her on broad-spectrum antibiotics within an hour, according to our sepsis bundle. We give her a fluid bolus, and she doesn't react the way we want her to, so she ends up on a norepinephrine drip. Unfortunately, later that day, her blood pressures are still not reaching the MAP goal that we have set for her, so we have to add on an IV vasopressin as well. Even worse for her, she decompensates quite quickly, and we actually have to intubate her, so she is on mechanical ventilation. Now, don't fret. Fast forward a little bit to day four, and she is looking a lot better. She is still on antibiotics, but we've been able to successfully wean her off of her vasopressin. That norepi drip is still running at about 0.15 mics per kg, and we were actually able to extubate her to nasal cannula as well. On day five, things are looking really good. She's starting to ask if she can go home soon. She's on her last day of antibiotics. She is still off vasopressin. She's still extubated on room air. However, that norepi drip is still running at about 0.09 mics per kg. Now, day six, same story here. We still have that norepi running. She's getting a little bit antsy. She'd love to go home. However, we can't just get that norepi dose off. Now, day seven rolls around and she's making jokes. She's ordering pancakes. She's going on rounds with us. But that norepi drip is just still going. And this might be the situation where a team could ask, is this the right time for midadrin? So let's dive in a little bit to what the literature has shown us so far. So in 2013, we had this Levine study, which really kind of put Minadrin back on the map. And this was a single-center prospective observational study looking specifically at surgical patients with persistent vasopressor needs. And they defined persistent vasopressor needs as a need for greater than or equal to 24 hours' worth of IV vasopressors. What they were hoping to answer with this study is, does adding minadrin to a patient on IV vasopressors increase the rate of vasopressor decline? Meaning, when we add minadrin on, are we able to titrate off our vasopressor faster? So they included adult ICU patients that were meeting discharge criteria, except for low-dose vasopressor needs, the way they define low-dose vasopressor needs here were a phenylephrine dose less than 150 mics per min or norepinephrine less than eight mics per min and those who had also concurrently received midodrine. Now, if you're if you're like me and you only like weight-based dosing, I've included that here for you as well. And what we'll see here is that this isn't an overwhelmingly high vasopressor need but also not very low either. And notably, they did exclude patients that received less than three doses of midodrine or had any other reason to be on it already. So taking a look at their baseline demographics, the first thing I'd like to point out here is that we had a total sample size of 20 patients. So overall, this was a very small study. Our Apache 2 scores here, which is meant to represent a patient's risk for mortality in the ICU, was only 18, which translates to a mortality risk of about 12% in a post-operative patient. So again, not incredibly impressive, and we tend to see a little bit higher Apaches in ICUs, especially here at Mayo. Now, they also included a phenylephrine equivalent rate here, which was 41, and so for those of you who are a little bit more familiar with norepinephrine equivalents, this ends up being about 0.06, so again, pretty low dose of norepinephrine or vasopressors in general. And they also included here a breakdown of what the admitting surgical service was, and you can see it was a pretty heterogeneous group. So taking a look at what they found, I'll start here on the right with this chart, So what this is actually looking at is each individual patient and the rate of vasopressor decline before and after minadrin. And what they ended up finding was that there actually was a statistically significant difference of how quickly they were able to titrate off that vasopressor with more patients in the Minodrin being able to titrate off faster. Now, because this was a retrospective trial, none of the dosing was protocolized, unfortunately, but our most common dose here was minadrin, 20 milligrams, three times daily. I'd like to just talk about that three times daily dosing again, because this comes back to that risk for supine hypertension, because they didn't want to give patients minadrin overnight. However, because these patients did not have autonomic dysfunction, this was actually an inappropriate dosing regimen, and I would consider it to be a limitation of this study. However, they did find some positive results. They had about 70% of patients that were off of IV vasopressors within 24 hours. They also had a median time from vasopressor initiation, from minadrine initiation to vasopressor discontinuation of 17 hours. And the total duration of minadrine lasted about four days. However, they didn't comment on whether or not any patients were continued on this medication outpatient. So taking a step back here, I think it was good that we got a specific population here. We only looked at surgical patients, which is helpful as we try to really identify a patient population that would benefit from Mitadrin. However, there are a number of weaknesses. Most importantly, I think, the fact that we only had 20 patients makes it a little bit difficult to draw conclusions from this study. Additionally, it was an observational study design. So the question remains, are there unknown confounders that potentially affected the results that we found? Again, the TID-minadrine dosing is not the most appropriate dosing for these patients. And then finally, their primary outcome really was not clinically relevant. We don't tend to measure how quickly a patient titrates off their vasopressor. We don't look at the rate of decline in the ICU. And I think a better outcome here would have been time to vasopressor discontinuation. Now, in 2016, Woodston and his colleagues tried to build upon what we had learned from Levine in a new population, so this was a two-arm, single-center retrospective trial looking specifically at medical ICU patients with septic shock that were requiring greater than or equal to 24 hours' worth of IV vasopressors and demonstrating clinical stability. And the way that they defined clinical stability in this study was essentially either a stable or a decreasing dose of vasopressors. Now the question that they were hoping to answer was, does adding minadrin to reduce the duration of vasopressor use and overall ICU length of stay? So we had a comparison group here, which is a step up from our Levine trial. We also had a pretty large sample size with about 140 patients in each group. And so we were comparing patients on IV vasopressors only to patients on IV vasopressors and minadrin. Now again, because this was retrospective, we didn't have protocolized dosing of minadrin. But our most common starting dose here was 10 milligrams every eight hours, and then the team could increase the dose if they wanted to. And the authors had commented a little bit on this and that they did have a hospital titration protocol where they could potentially increase by five to 10 milligrams with every dose um, up to a max of 40 milligrams every eight hours. However, our mean dose ended up being about 20 milligrams every eight hours. Now taking a look at our baseline characteristics, the first thing I'd like to mention is that there were no statistically significant differences between our two groups, and they were pretty well matched at baseline. You'll see here that our Apache scores are significantly higher than what we saw with Levine, so this represents a much more critically ill patient population than what we previously saw. Also notably, about 30% of the patients in this study were on corticosteroids, which we know has been proven to reduce vasopressor needs overall and help supplement blood pressure. Finally, they did identify the sources of sepsis, and primarily we saw pulmonary and urinary, which I think is a pretty good representation of what we might see in practice. So just a little bit about how they did their vasopressor dosing. The most common doses of norepinephrine coming into this study were .09, so a little bit higher than what we saw with Levine, again, also with the phenylephrine. And most patients were continued on mitogrin for about 6.15 days. And this study actually did talk about whether or not patients were continued on mitogrin in the outpatient setting, which we'll talk about in just a moment. So let's take a look at their results here. On the left-hand side, we have their primary outcome, which was ICU length of stay. And we did actually find a statistically significant benefit showing that patients on minadrin had a shorter length of stay in the ICU by about two days. On the right-hand side, we have duration of vasopressors, which again was statistically significant with the benefit for minadrin. Now, they also looked at IV vasopressor reinstitution rate, which essentially is whether or not a patient could be successfully weaned off of the vasopressors or whether or not they required the restarting of these vasopressors. And so, again, we found a statistically significant benefit here with our minigering group with less of those patients overall having to get restarted on IV vasopressors. Now, they also took a look at hospital length of stay, but did not find any statistically significant differences. And again, in ICU mortality, again, they found no statistically significant differences. Now, one unique thing about this study is that they did look at the percentage of patients that were continued on minadren at hospital discharge, and found that 13% of patients were. Now, I'd just like to note that this is overall inappropriate in the majority of situations, as this is a transient hypotension, and typically these patients don't have problems with hypotension. So we should not be continuing Minadrin in the outpatient setting, as this could lead to hypertension um, and potentially readmissions for hypertensive crises. Now, I think we learned a lot from the Whitson trial. Overall, I'd say it was great that we had a comparison group. We also had really well-matched baseline characteristics. And also, we had the largest sample size so far. Although it was an observational study design, so again, potentially unforeseen um, confounders. And finally, we also had concurrent corticosteroid use, which I would consider to be a huge confounder in this study. Now, later that year, we had this study from Poveromo, slightly different. Uh, this is a single-center retrospective observational study that looked at adult ICU patients with mixed hypotension who received minadren. And their primary outcome was time to IV vasopressor discontinuation after midodrine initiation. They also looked at ICU length of stay and ICU readmission rates. Now, for their inclusion, they looked at patients admitted to an ICU that received one or more vasopressors and had kind of this mixed hypotension. And so what they talked about there is that either from cardiovascular, trauma, or sepsis. Um, however, we didn't get too much further detail on what that really meant. Now, we had a comparison group here again with about 90 patients in each. So this was IV vasopressors and minadren versus just IV vasopressors. Now, again, this was retrospective, so we still don't have protocolized dosing. However, our dosing did vary a little bit in this study compared to what we've seen previously, with a dosing range of anywhere between 2.5 and 10 milligrams every 6 to 8 hours. And this is the only study that we'll talk about today that has every six hour dosing. And I'd just like to mention, um, as we said, the half-life is about three to four hours for this medication. So truly this every six hour dosing does make pharmacologic sense. It's just not something we tend to see very often in the literature. Their most common dose was 10 milligrams every eight hours, which is notable because this is the lowest dose we've seen so far in any of our trials. And the mean duration was pretty similar to what we saw with Levine at about four days. Now, taking a look at our baseline characteristics here, this is the first study where we actually do have statistically significant differences between our baseline groups. Most notably here, our Apache was much lower for the Minidrin group, so patients in the IV vasopressors-only group were already at an increased risk for mortality. Next, they also had corticosteroid use again in this study. However, there was much more corticosteroid use in our menadren group. And then finally, number of vasopressors used. So this is the only study where patients could be on more than one vasopressor and be included, which kind of tells us that perhaps we were starting midodrine a little bit earlier on in their clinical course. And notably, there were statistically significant difference here, differences here as well, with more patients in the midodrine group being on more than one vasopressor. So they also broke it down a little bit by the cause of hypotension. And again, we see the cardiovascular trauma and sepsis, which I would note are a little bit vague here. They do mention that for trauma, it was mostly spinal cord injuries or traumatic brain injuries. But the question does remain, is it possible that some sort of blunt trauma could have led to an infection? And perhaps we saw some septic patients kind of included in that trauma group. We don't know for sure. And vasopressor choice here, the only statistically significant difference we have is with the use of norepinephrine. So more patients in our minadrine group were on norepinephrine than in the IV vasopressors only. Now, I'd just like to point out our norepinephrine equivalents here. We see a, overall a very low dose of norepinephrine, um, so low vasopressor needs overall. So what did they find? On the left-hand side, this was their primary outcome, and this is looking at time from IV vasopressor discontinuation after minadren initiation. And so this specifically only looked at our mitadrine patient population and found that overall patients could get off of vasopressors in about 1.2 days, with the m- longest duration of vasopressor use in our sepsis patients at 2.2 days. Now one thing I want to note is they actually did not compare this primary outcome to the patients that were only on IV vasopressors. So it's a little bit hard to draw conclusions from this and what this really tells us about the benefit of Minodrine. In regards to ICU length of stay on the right, we saw that there was no statistically significant differences. However, in hospital length this day, we actually did see a statistically significant difference. However, it actually favored the IV vasopressors group. So patients on Minidurin were actually in the hospital for a longer duration. They also took a look at time to ICU discharge following vasopressor discontinuation, where we did see a benefit within the minadren group, although I would like to note that there is a lot of logistical issues that can lead to a patient having a delayed discharge from the ICU that could potentially have nothing to do with their clinical course. So things like bed availability or just staff availability could potentially have influenced this outcome. Now, notably at the bottom, they did find that 12.8% of the patients in the minigren group experienced bradycardia. However, the study was not powered to look at safety outcomes, so this is more just exploratory. So overall, looking at what we've kind of learned from Povaroma, we had a comparative group, which was great again. Study side was pretty decent, about 94 patients in each group. But again, we had corticosteroid use, which we know is a confounder, and it was statistically significant for being different between our two baseline groups. Again, this primary outcome was not actually compared, so it's really hard to say that Minogen really did reduce the duration of vasopressors when they didn't compare it to the group only on IV vasopressors. And then finally, we had a lot of different variations in baseline characteristics, including an Apache score that was significantly different in our Minogen group. So let's kind of talk about what we've learned from these studies so far. So Levine in 2013 primarily looked at surgical patients and we had a dosing range of 5 to 20, a three times a day dosing. Now their most common dose was that 20 milligrams three times a day and they actually concluded pretty positive things. So they saw that patients could get off of their vasopressor faster and overall about 70% of their patients were able to get off of vasopressor within about four doses of Minadrin. Now, in 2016, we looked specifically at septic shock in this WITSTON trial here. Um, we had a dosing range of 10 to 40 every eight hours, with, with, again, the most common dose being 20 milligrams. And they kind of found some mixed results. So uh, they found that patients could get off of their IV vasopressor faster. They also found a reduced ICU length of stay, but they found no difference in mortality and no difference difference in hospital duration overall. Then finally, Poveromo in 2016, we had a mixed hypotension group here. Um, they had the most varied dosing from what we've seen so far with a range of about 2.5 to 10 milligrams every six to eight hours, with their most common dose being 10 milligrams every eight hours. And mostly they kind of concluded that it was a little bit of a negative outcome here where we found Minadren actually increased the hospital length of stay, had no difference on ICU length of stay. And then although they did note that it helps the patients get off their vasopressors faster. It's a little bit too hard to draw that conclusion, just given the fact that we didn't compare it between the two groups. So based on that, would you consider recommending Minadrin for a patient with persistent low-dose IV vasopressor needs? Again, you can use your uh, tablet or smartphone uh, using Pull Everywhere or text mayorx rx to 22333 once to join. All right, so these have moved around quite a bit, but it looks like we have about 70% saying yes, and about 30% saying no. So I bet for all of you saying no, you're just really wishing we had a randomized control trial that could really tell us with some strong evidence whether or not to add on Minadrin. Well, fortunately, in 2020, we got the MIDAS trial, which was a highly anticipated study. And so this was a multi-center, international, randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial. We actually had one site here in the U.S. in Boston and then two sites in Australia. And they were looking at adult ICU patients requiring single-agent IV vasopressor treatment. Now, their primary outcome was time from stardominadrine to vasopressor discontinuation, and they also looked at a number of secondary outcomes, including time to ICU discharge readiness, ICU and hospital length of stay, and rates of readmission. And I'd just like to point out that I do like that they looked at ICU discharge readiness instead of just ICU discharge, because I think this is a good way to get around some of those logistical things that could potentially elongate a patient's ICU stay. So we had a little bit more stringent inclusion and exclusion criteria in this study than what we saw previously. So patients were included if they were unable to liberate from vasopressors for at least 24 hours, if they were requiring a single agent IV vasopressor treatment, and they had to be on doses less than 100 mcg per min phenylephrine, less than 8 mcg per min norepinephrine, or less than 60 mcg per minute of amethoriminol. Now, if you don't practice pharmacy in Australia and you are unfamiliar with metaramidol, I don't blame you. This is an IV alpha-1 agonist that's really similar to phenylephrine and is used quite frequently in Australia. Now, for their exclusion criteria, they excluded patients with liver failure, chronic renal failure, or severe heart failure. I do want to mention on this a little bit. So in some of their supplementary data, they commented on why they excluded these groups. And for liver failure, the explanation was that minadrin is hepatically, enzymatically activated. And so they figured that for patients with liver failure, it would not be as, in, as effective. However, we did talk about today the fact that it's not only metabolized in the liver, it's also metabolized in the tissues. So it's a little bit unclear if this was um, the best choice here for the Midas uh, authors They also excluded chronic renal failure, which they defined as a serum creatinine of greater than 2 at admission, which again here is a little bit questionable. And then finally, severe heart failure for the safety effects. Patients that received midadren prior to enrollment were also excluded. And finally, patients that were bradycardic with a heart rate less than 50. So with our comparison group here, we finally got a placebo. Uh, we had 20 milligrams of minadrin every eight hours in one arm compared to placebo. Patients were randomized one-to-one to either receive minadrin or the placebo group, and they had to be on one IV vasopressor. Now, patients could be on more than one IV vasopressor prior to enrollment, but at randomization, they could only be on one. Now, they did have a study success criteria, so if blood pressure goals were met for at least 24 hours off of IV vasopressors, the team could decide to discontinue the study drug, and they did actually have protocolized dose titrations for minogen for titrating off, and so this team could reduce the dose by 10 milligrams every 8 hours um, and then go to 5 milligrams, and once at 5 milligrams, they could discontinue the drug overall. They also had a few safety criteria. So if at any point a patient required more than one IV vasopressor, they were forced to discontinue the Minadren as well. So taking a look at our baseline characteristics here, the first thing I'd like to point out is that our study sample size was only 66 patients in each group. Now, the duration of this study was about seven years for enrollment. So given the fact that this was an international study with a seven-year period, I think we were all a little bit surprised to see such a low patient population. Now, our Apache scores here are the lowest that we've seen in any study presented here. So what this really tells us is that we were dealing with a little bit of a healthier patient population. Now, indication for ICU admission, while it was a mixed hypotension group, we did see primarily post-op surgical patients with only 20% of the patients being aseptic shock patients. Now, baseline maps, I really want to point out here, because typically when we're starting IV vasopressors, we're titrating to a mean arterial pressure goal of greater than or equal to 65. So both of these groups were well above this range here, which shows us that we didn't have extremely hemodynamically unstable patients at baseline. Finally, vasopressor dose at enrollment, we see pretty low overall vasopressor doses. And again, I want to highlight that they could only be on one vasopressor to be included. Now, they do include here epidural analgesia, and that is because they ended up doing a post-hoc analysis on this subset of patients that we'll talk about as we go on. So, for their outcomes, their first outcome median time to vasopressor discontinuation, we found no statistically significant differences between our two groups. For ICU readmission, though it looks a little bit different, there actually was no difference, and it was not statistically significant. Now, looking at their secondary outcomes here, hospital length of stay, ICU length of stay, and time to ICU readiness for discharge were also not statistically significant. So we found no differences between the groups. Now, again, as I mentioned, they did do a post-hoc analysis in the patients that had epidural analgesia and found that more patients in the midadrine group were able to discontinue their vasopressor faster. Now with this, they didn't explain too much on what that epidural really consisted of, whether or not it was just a pain block or opioids and what doses were used. So this is a little bit more exploratory and hypothesis generating. Now, one unique thing about MIDAS is that they actually were powered to look at safety outcomes, and though we did not see any differences between hypertension or rates of atrial fibrillation between our two groups, we did see a statistically significant difference in bradycardia between the two, with the minidrin group having an, an incidence of about 7.6% compared to zero in our placebo group. Now, the way that they defined bradycardia in this study was a heart rate less than 40. And so i just like to put into question, potentially, how many patients did we miss by setting a heart rate that low? So overall, it was exciting. We finally had a randomized control trial. They looked at safety outcomes, which is a step up from some of our other studies. And they had protocolized dosing of minadren, which really helps us to compare between the two groups. However, very slow enrollment, and the fact that we actually screened about 500 patients in this study and 300 of them were excluded kind of brings into question how relevant is this to a greater ICU population. We also had high baseline MAPs here, with MAPs being above the 70s in both groups. Now, in our midterms group, our, our baseline MAP was actually an average of about 76, and I would argue that a patient with a MAP that high probably doesn't need to be on IV vasopressors at all. Now, finally, healthier patient population, we saw this with our Apache score. We really had less critically ill patients in the study overall. So I'd like to propose a clinical case to you all. You are the pharmacist covering the medical ICU today. A 55-year-old male is admitted for septic shock and has been on 0.07 mics per kg per min of norepinephrine for three days now. Every time the norepinephrine GIP is turned off, his MAP drops to 60. Our vials today, we have a heart rate of 67, blood pressure is 98 over uh, over 70, and he is satting well on room air. Now, the team approaches you and asks if they should start minadrin. How would you like to respond? All right, so we see primarily options C and D being selected here, a little bit of a split. So let's go through these. So A, start minadrin 20 milligrams three times daily. No one fell for this, and I'm glad. So three times a day dosing is not the most appropriate dosing if your patient does not have autonomic dysfunction. Uh, Option B here, start minadrin 20 milligrams every eight hours and monitor for tachycardia would be incorrect as well since we know that it's bradycardia that we worry about. Option C would be my choice, start Minadrin 10 milligrams every eight hours and monitor for bradycardia. Although I don't think option B is incorrect. I think based on what we've kind of learned so far and what the evidence has shown us, there's not a really strong evidence-based here decision saying that Minadrin is incredibly helpful. I don't think we can say that with certainty. And so for those of you who said D, I think you are also justified. So this really raises the question, where can we actually use Minadrin? And what might be the best patient to consider this in? I think the first thing you need to consider is if you have a patient that has ongoing low-dose IV vasopressor needs. So if your patient is having to retitrate up on some of their vasopressors, or potentially you're adding in more than one vasopressor, I think it's a little bit too soon to start Midodrine. If you have a patient with low vasopressor requirements and is failing multiple weaning attempts to come off of that drip, I think the next thing you should ask yourself is what's their heart rate? Now, these are my personal clinical cutoffs, and I think that if a patient had a heart rate less than 50, I probably don't think it's safe to start Midodrine, as we know that the potential for that to cause some bradycardia is pretty high. If your patient does have a heart rate greater than 50, the next thing I'd like you to look at is what's their indication, since we have had patients kind of divided up based on what their primary cause for hypotension is. And so here a little bit, it's it's a little less unclear because we didn't have clear answers on which patient might benefit the most. But what we have seen in the literature, at least with septic patients, we had that trial from 2016, the Whitson trial, which really was the one strong supporter of of Midodrine for our septic shock patients. And they found that patients could get out of the ICU faster and potentially had reduced vasopressor needs in that group. Now, in Midas, we didn't see as impressive results with our septic shock patients, but again, it only did make up 20% of our patient population. And I think one thing you should ask yourself is, what's the risk-benefit here? So overall, if your patient has a stable heart rate, one dose of minadrin is not going to cause negative effects, and if it could potentially get your patient out of the ICU faster, it's something you could consider. For our post-op surgical patients, again, we don't have great evidence here, our main trials looking at this was Levine in 2013, which is a little bit too outdated at this point, and had a very small sample size. So even though they found benefits, I don't think that's a strong supporter for Minodrin in this subset of patients. Now, Poveromo looked at this subset of patients as well, and so did Midas. And again, we didn't really see impressive results. But I think the same clinical criteria of, is there a harm in adding Minodrin, or could you potentially speed up something uh, like an ICU discharge? So overall, there's a lot of little pearls that you need to think about with minadrin dosing and when you might consider it. The first thing I'd say is you should always check for reversible causes of hypotension. So these are things as simple as checking fluid status, checking blood volume. Is there another obvious etiology of hypotension that you should be correcting? Because the last thing you'd like to do is throw on minadrin as a Band-Aid to a patient that has a very clear reason to be hypotensive. I think in general, the evidence has shown us so far that you should avoid if they're clinically unstable. If they're having increasing vasopressor needs or on more than one vasopressor, I don't think the evidence has shown us that there's benefit yet with Minadrin. The one study that looked at early administration of minidrin was Poveromo, where we actually saw an increased hospital length of stay with these patients. Monitor vitals and renal function, so obviously we need to monitor for heart rate, as we know it can cause some bradycardia. But also monitoring for blood pressure response. See if you're getting the blood pressure response that you want with Minodrine, because if you're not, then maybe it's not worth the added risk. And this is a renally cleared agent, so potentially if your patient has a new onset AKI, this might not be the best choice either. My recommendation for a starting dose would be anywhere from 10 to 20 milligrams every 6 to 8 hours. Typically, we do see that every 8-hour dosing, but I think every 6 hours makes sense from a pharmacokinetic profile, and I think an an argument can be made for this schedule of dosing. Now, reassess need a hospital discharge, this is a key thing here for Minodrine, as we do not want to send our patients out on this medication. This could potentially lead to increases in hypertension and hypertensive crises if it's not followed up on. And something as simple as leaving a note in the handoff to your pharmacy colleagues if it started in the ICU and continued to a different general care floor can really help to make sure that these are peeled off at discharge. And then finally, remember to titrate up and down. So this would be my recommendation for titration, which would be to increase by 10 milligrams per dose per day. Um, and this is pretty much what we've seen in the literature and what um, other hospitals have done in regards to their titration schedules. Now, our max here is 40 milligrams every eight hours. And even though this isn't an evidence-based maximum, I would say that if your patient's requiring more than this dose, then they're probably not quite ready to come off of IV vasopressors. In regards to decreasing doses, I think decreasing by 5 to 10 milligrams per dose per day is appropriate. And once you get down to that 5 milligram dose, you can probably just take it off without the need to move towards 2.5 milligrams. So overall, I think unfortunately, even though we did get our placebo control trial that we all wanted, there's still a lot of unanswered questions. So first, what is the best frequency of minodron dosing? I would love to see some more literature looking at Q6-hour dosing. And while there is some, there's not an abundance of literature looking specifically at this and comparing it to the Q8-hour dosing. What is the most appropriate starting dose? Like I said, this is not an evidence-based decision. 10 to 20 milligrams seems to be an appropriate starting dose. However, we don't have a lot of literature comparing starting doses in patients. And then finally, is there a benefit in early versus late initiation and septic shock? I think this is a really interesting question that hopefully we'll get a little bit more information on as we kind of move forward here. Because we do know that time is very sensitive in sepsis. And we found like things like antibiotics and fluid bolusing earlier on has led to really good outcomes in mortality. So the question remains, is there a benefit in the timing of minadrin dosing? And potentially we might see some differences in our outcomes.
0: If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics.